Welcome to the Chris Rawl Show. My name is Chris Rawl. The Colorado Avalanche are one win away from the one thing that my heart desires. I'm not going to get too much into that today, but I'm still riding an emotional high from game four. Uh, game five is tonight in Colorado with Stanley Cup in the building. It's going to be an incredibly emotional time. However, that is a conversation for another day. Today, I want to have a different conversation. First and foremost, you need to sign up for my newsletter. Go and do it now. ChrisRawl.com. Hit the subscribe button, put your email in. Number two, I want to interview people who feel a very deep and emotional connection to sports. I want to talk about that connection. You know that this show is about sports, but in probably more ways, just about emotion that arises from things in life, including sports. And I think a lot of people who listen to this show and who just exist in day-to-day have that same feeling, uh, whether it's the exact same that I describe it or whether in different avenues. The point is I want to interview people and I want to put that out on this show as an extension to what I'm doing because I don't think there's a lot of conversation about that particular facet of fandom, just this emotional, deep, burning connection that you have to a thing that sometimes is hard to describe. And I think the more that you talk it through, the more interesting it becomes. So if you are one of those people, or if you know somebody who you think would be a good fit for that, please email me. My email is chris at co.com, please. And thank you. And now we move on to today's show where I talk about money and competition. I am constantly complaining about replay reviews in sports because they drive me insane. And they're probably going to kill me at some point if the Stanley Cup Finals don't. I have two things coming at me, and one will assuredly kill me. Uh, and a lot of people will go, well, why, why are you always complaining about this thing? I don't get it. And I go, well, I complain about this because I love these things. I love hockey. I love football. I love basketball. I love golf. I love all these things. And when you love something, you always want it improved. I say that for myself. I love myself very deeply. Sounds strange saying out loud. Makes me sound like kind of a pervert, which I am, but in other ways. Uh, This love for myself, it is manifested by a continual search to improve. You know, the things or the standards that I hold others to and apply to the sports leagues, I, I apply to myself. Every day I wake up and I go, okay, you need to get better at this. You did this wrong. You can do better in these areas. You can be better in at these things. There's always room for improvement. That's a really integral piece of existence. Starting on an individual level, moving out to the things that I care about. So with sports, I'm always plucking out things and saying, but this could be better, but this could be better, but this could be better. Replay reviews, that's one of them. It's just when they very first came around, it seemed like, this is going to be fantastic because the last 20 years of, of watching sports have taught me that refs miss a bunch of calls because they're humans and they always have room for improvement. And think about the outcomes that we could change that were determined by these incorrect calls. And we could do this and do this and do this. And it sounded cool in theory. It sounded really noble, like a great pursuit that would definitely improve all these sports that we care about. And what's happened is, no, the exact opposite just kind of turned into, well, they still get it just as wrong. And it's more maddening when you're doing that. Not to mention, we now have review after review in all of these games of just, let's slow it down. Let's freeze frame it. We still can't tell. Let's go over it for five minutes. Let's go over it for 10 minutes. Can you tell? No, let's just, should we overturn the, we can't tell. We can't tell. 
one of the ways that things could just pick up. But to the credit of some of these sports leagues, I do think they're continually trying to get better. NFL is probably the best league for my money that is continually pushing to improve their on-field product. I think they think about that a lot. They're a very uh, immoral organization outside of football, like follow anything that's going on in the news with them, whether it's the Deshaun Watson stuff or the Daniel Snyder stuff, or pick your random NFL story of the week. And it's just, these people are probably moral, not probably, these people are morally bankrupt. At the same time, they create a product that a lot of people want, myself included. So in my mind, I go, well, all right, you know, if I boycotted everything that I think is morally bankrupt, I would literally do nothing because I think that every big organization is that. The NFL, same. Okay, let's talk about the football. Well, in that respect, they are continually trying to be better. They might not in real life, but on the football front, yeah, let's, okay, how do we do stuff? And they're not perfect, you know. They've done a lot of good things over the last few years as far as improving the on-field product, but coming into this season, they for random reasons that nobody could determine, think we should call more taunting penalties. Something that literally nobody was talking about. Nobody wanted. Nobody ever wants that. And as the season went on, they just kind of receded in their shell and said, yeah, maybe this is not the greatest idea. And we all said, no shit. We knew that from the get-go. Nobody wants that. But I do think they're always trying to keep football, the sport itself, moving in the right direction. Hockey is kind of, it's following a similar path, but in really slow terms, it's the tortoise versus the hare. The pace can be maddening, but I do think hockey is recognizing things about itself, especially over the last decade that, you know what, this is a really awesome sport that a lot of people don't understand or like. And I think a lot of that is on us and the elimination of the two line pass. That's a huge step forward. Open up space. That's good for the game. Cracking down on a lot of the just obstruction penalties that have existed in the past where why should you have free reign to chop and slash and hook because you are less talented than the opposition? That doesn't make any sense. So open it up. Okay, what do we have? Well, we have the most entertaining season of hockey this year. And I don't just say that as an avalanche fan in a long time because of those things. Now, basketball has been following kind of a reverse trend. And this is the one that I have the most complaints about that some of which I've aired on this podcast, all of which I've aired in my private life with people who like basketball. And it seems to me the sport is kind of moving in reverse. It seems like they don't necessarily care as much about their on-court product as much as they care about just, let's generate interest in hoopla about this sport, but it doesn't necessarily have to deal with basketball. You know, anything that's off the court, Oh, let's play some drama. Let's do this. This is great. You know, I think the NBA really feeds off that. And to its credit, it has garnered a lot of fans by doing that. And if I'm being fair, I'm probably in the minority of people who follow the sport who go, I just, but I like basketball. And the number one thing that I wish this league cared about was basketball. And instead, we have a sport in present day that more than ever seems like it's decided by flopping and who is favored by the ref's whistle do things that have just been ramping up over the last two-ish decades. So that leads into probably the most interesting uh, crossroads, I'll call it, for a professional sport in my life, the PGA Tour, men's golf, versus the upstart live. 
Um, and and what is there's a lot of things that go into this particular situation. Again, I, I'm not comfortable talking about moral stuff. I just that's not a part of me. Uh, I have my own personal things that I hold myself to, and I don't really feel comfortable talking about that for other people. So that's not what today's show is going to be about. Today's show is going to be about kind of the ideology behind how a sport can improve. And then we're going to trickle that down to an individual level. We're going to talk motivation, two things I love talking about. So as far as the higher level stuff, the organizational stuff, what really makes me angry so far about this situation is that if you prevented this in a vacuum, if you said the PGA Tour is sitting here and it's just sat on its hands for so long because there's been no other options. And now there's an upstart league that's presenting a challenge. If you presented that in a vacuum, I would say the situation could be so beneficial. You know, what's what is a situation like that going to inspire innovation? That's kind of how it works. You know, if if a monopoly exists and then other things can come along and say, well, we can do this better. Usually that creates the best possible product. Whoever it may come from, it comes from, but it creates the best possible product. And then consumers go that way and say, you know, what's sweet. Either this new thing or this old thing that was forced to change. And maybe this situation can turn into that. You know, we're still in the early phases. It's just, it seems like by the hour, there's some new bombshell that changes this and changes that. But the early returns are anything but promising. Because I think we have two organizations that don't necessarily care about the actual product itself. I think that this particular discussion has to do with outside things. So the PGA Tour, I want to start with them. The PGA Tour has operated for decades as the kingpin of golf. No competitors is what that means. They're kind of free to do what they will. They own the lion's share of how professional golf is run, unless you want to go to the European Tour, the Asian Tour, these tours that are inferior both from a purse size and from a competition size. And so while it is Possible to continue improving in a situation like that. Again, think back to the NFL. The NFL has no competitors, never has. These random upstart leagues, whether it's the USFL or the, you know, pick your, pick your league of choice that's popped up and burned out in the course of a year or two. You can still innovate within that if you truly do care about the on-field, on-course product. The PGA has done anything but that. I think the PGA Tour has gotten very comfortable and fat in their own skin and said, this is working for us and what other options do people have? So we can just continue to trot out the same thing we've always trotted out without a thought for innovation, without a thought for the consumer. What is going to be interesting to these people to watch? It's why you have these just dog shit broadcasts again and again and again, because they don't have to worry about golf fans going somewhere else. There's not, if you're a fan of professional men's golf, that's just what exists. You go and watch a shit CBS broadcast or NBC broadcast, you go and watch these tournaments that are buried and you can't even watch half of them. You can't watch the start of a major. You can't watch this particular Alver major because now we're transitioning coverage from Golf Channel to CBS, but there's a 30 minute gap and just, oh, maybe go over to a streaming service and watch a feature group. It's just, it's not good stuff, right? The manufactured course setups, that's probably my main complaint with the PG Tour itself because as an avid golfer, as a person who's really grown to like watching golf over the last handful of years, I feel that the beauty of golf is the unknowable aspect of it. And the best 
way to set up a course for a tournament is not necessarily to say we want everything to be a noble, but it's to say, what is this course? Let's lean into the strengths of this course. What are its defenses? What does it try to encourage? How can we create a fair and equitable course that allows different skill sets to thrive? That's what golf is, in my opinion. That's what I believe brings out the very best in professional golfers, amateur golfers, and is the best possible viewing sport. Now, the PJ Tour believes differently because they love the manufactured course setup. They love, let's just grow up the rough a little and extend this course a little. And they do that to every course they go to. And it creates a brand of golf that I find to be rather boring. It's not very entertaining. Going back to the last episode I recorded, I mean, there's a reason that the U.S. Open and the Masters and the British Open are the three best tournaments by leaps and bounds of the entire year. It's because the PGA Tour is not involved. It's because all three of those tournaments will say, ah, let's, let's see what this course is. Let's let it bear its fangs. And let's see how we can create an equitable tournament based upon what we have at our disposal. Okay. If you think back to the PGA Championship of this year, it really highlighted that. And I just laughed and then kind of grew frustrated after player after player was bitching about the sand, the PGA Championship. He said, it's too hard. We're not used to playing this. It's just, and I go, well, welcome to golf. Okay. PGA Tour in their day-to-day stops. All of their tournaments, they every single course they play at, they say, you have to have this specific type of sand. You have to have this particular amount of it. They want every bunker to be the exact same. So every bunker shot is the exact same. That is not golf as I know it, especially based upon the courses I play. These municipal courses where you could get who the hell knows what. Sometimes it's not fair. Welcome to golf. It was very interesting. Watch just a bunch of less than stellar bunker shots over and over throughout that entire week, four straight days. People coming and bitching about it after, oh, I, I mean, these bunkers, they're just not up to par. And I go, that's what those bunkers are like at that course. That's what it is. Just creates an environment that I don't think is that entertaining. You know, I don't want to watch the same thing over and over. That's not golf. I want to watch these different courses with different strengths and different weaknesses and different things you have to think about. Another thing that has been really, really, really strange It was strange when I got into golf, which again has only happened within the last decade as I've really gotten into golf uh, as an amateur playing it. But one of the strangest components of this sport is that stars can kind of, actually anybody can, but stars especially because of their exempt status stuff, they can pick and choose when they want to play. Which, okay, that's cool. That's great. That sounds fun. If I were in their shoes, that would be great for me. But when you're trying to fan the fires of competition and say what creates the most compelling product. I go, well, let's rewind here. Why is this not a priority? This probably should be your number one priority because as a fan, I want to watch a field that has all the best people. I want to watch the best competitors compete against one another for stakes that I can understand. If you think about the NBA this year, this is one of the reasons that I've really soured on it over the last couple of years as Load management has popped up, and for reasons I understand. You want to be fresh in the playoffs. You want to, okay, this, uh, we, we get it. But it also has created large stretches of the regular season where I go, I don't care about this. I literally, do, I'm not invested emotionally. I will invest monetarily, but I don't even want to really watch the games because they're just boring. And the people who I want to watch are not playing. LeBron's not out here. Kawhi Leonard's not out here. Kevin Durant's not out here. Not because they suffered real legitimate injuries that are taking them out for a month or something. It's because, oh, you got a Nick, you got a this or that, just stuff that happens during the course of sports. And all right, let's just take it out. PGA Tour, it's even more so. It's not 
for a lot of players, an injury thing. It's just, eh, do I want to go and play in the Canadian Open when I could take a break before the U.S. Open? Or do I really want to go and play the Charles Schwab this week? Or I could just go boating, <laughs> hang out with a bunch of attractive women. I'd probably rather do that. Again, if I were in their shoes, I would do the same thing. <laughs> the point is, if you are the PGA Tour and you want the best players to play because it is in the best interest of your organization and your sport, how are you not setting up a structure that incentivizes them to do so? Instead of saying you're exempt for time and all eternity, if you lift a fingernail on this particular course at this particular time, you say, no, you need to continually earn the right to be playing against the best in the world. This should be a meritocracy. So let's have the best in the world play. Imagine if at the end of an NBA season, we just showed up to the finals and rather than having the Warriors and the Celtics playing because they were the two that won and survived the playoffs in the regular season, it was just, you know what, let's uh, maybe let's just sub in the... Nets here because we like Kyrie and Kevin Durant and they got the stars. And you know what? The Warriors, they're pretty good, but maybe, ah, the Suns, why not? Let's get him in here. Let's get them in here. Be very bizarre, right? But that's kind of the format that the PGA Tour has always followed. So it goes back to something that I think about a lot, individually and especially as a fan. How do you, can, how do you stoke this feeling of competition? That's something I've always said with the PGA Tour as soon as I started watching it. This is weird. Why are they not invested heavily in creating the best event every single week. Why do we have to wait until majors to really identify these players care? And it doesn't have to do with a purse has everything to do with just the best in the world are here and they're all very competitive people. And now the stakes seem like they're raised on an emotional level. So money can help in this money can always help. You know, that's how the FedEx cup came about that kind of stuff. They're, they're stoking that now as a response to live. But there are other things beyond that. It kind of goes back to the question of Tuesday's episode that I asked. How do you make people care? That's a question the PGA Tour should have been asking for as long as they've existed. How do you make people care within your own organization? Talking specifically about players. They should have been talking about that a long ass time ago, especially as it pertains to star talent. The question that every league should be asking. All the other leagues have done a much better job at that. How do you make fans care? That's the question they should have always been asking. And it seems like time and again, they just have not really cared about the consumer. There's uh, the, they don't have a choice. They want to watch men's professional golf. They will watch this. So here's a giant middle finger to the rest of you. So now Liv enters the equation, which is kind of just, it's money in exchange for the essence of golf. You know, golf at its best, is not what Liv is. It's not what the PGA Tour is. That's kind of why I look at this situation. I go, this kind of bums me out. I just, I don't think that either one of these organizations represents what I think golf at the highest level should be, what I truly do believe a lot of people think. So Liv is, it's money. First and foremost, that's what it is. And you know, it's not, it's not necessarily people who care about Growing the game, it's not people who care about improving on golf as a sport, especially on a professional level. That is not what this organization is about. It's an organization that has infinite resources. You know, uh, I'm sure plenty of you have heard about the money trail. It's coming from Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund that just essentially goes out and tries to get things to come into Saudi Arabia. Uh, as a way of saying, hey, you know, a lot of shady stuff that's going on here, but look what's not shady. Oh, this thing over here. You know, it's the shiny new toy. 
to show the world that things are happening within this country that are not all bad. That's kind of what this represents, right? And again, it's pretty much limitless resources. It's just money upon money upon money upon money. And again, there's a lot of moral questions that go into this that I'm not here to examine. If you want to do that, great, go for it. You know, there's a lot of things that you can go and read and listen to that will debate that side of things and discuss that side of things. What I'm more interested in for the purpose of today's show is determining who is moving in a positive direction here. You know, when we think about all of these entities, the PGA Tour is live, these specific players that are on one side or the other, and then fans in general who can pick and choose what they want to watch and when they want to watch it. A lot of balls up in the air that are being juggled. So as I'm thinking about all of this over the course of, I mean, now it's been months, but it just seems like every day because of the new stuff, Brooks Kepka's coming out saying he's gone. So now there's another new cycle of just, man, I'm, how much trouble is the PGA Tour in? What is Liv going to be moving forward beyond just these exhibition matches that have these quote unquote teams that are not really teams? You can just kind of, some can choose their teams, and which seems very unfair in a team competition while others have to draft these from these pool of shit players. Very strange stuff. But I came across a tweet from Ahmad Freed of NBC Sports that I want to read. He says, I think it's fair to say that tension exists in pro sports on whether the athlete is more motivated by the game or the financial rewards, end quote. It's definitely true. I feel that now more than ever. And it's a really complex thing because what I want as a fan is going to be different from what a player wants as the person who's involved, which is going to be different from what an executive at one of these tours wants, which is different from just a casual observer wants, which is different from the people who follow politics and say, no, this is a moral issue and we have an obligation to discuss it as this, what they want. There's, it's a really, really, really complex thing to discuss. So how I always discuss these things is I can speak to my own personal experience and I like to theorize about individual motivations and where they will arrive if they take path A, B, or C. You know, I'm, I'm a person who, you know this because you listen to the show, I'm never the one to say, this is the correct way to make a decision for every human on planet Earth. I just don't believe that's true. But I do continually ask myself and would also encourage everybody else to ask the question of what do I value in life? That's a thing, again, I ask every day. And it changes. It's changed drastically over the course of my life from when I was 16 to when I was 21 to 26 to go on until present day when I'm 36. It's changed drastically. You know what I value in life when I'm 16? It was eating pizza. <laughs> I'm dead serious. I loved eating pizza. That was the thing that I valued deeply. Playing ping pong, playing video games. That's the, literally, those were the things that I just go, no, this is what I want to do. You know, stokes the fires of happiness within me. That's something that I like to pursue. And to be fair, that's something that has really resonated without me throughout my life. That particular thread of what makes me happy. And if it's not hurting other people, I feel an obligation to pursue that because I like being happy. Just really simple stuff, right? Now, within that time span, you know, this 20 year run, as I've been more cognizant of just life and what do I want from it? I've started on different paths and maybe taken some of them to completion and maybe gotten on some and said, maybe this isn't for me, you know? And on a personal level, one of those things was money, you know, for a brief spell, it seemed like something that I desired, this potential road 
and you know, I'm coming out of college and I'm going, this is going to be, oh man, I can start getting money in this way and this way. And I could take this job or this job and it's going to be sweet. And I'm going to have the big 401k and I'm just really like mid-level American stuff. But for me, it seemed so cool because that was the phase of life that I was at. So I go, oh yeah, let's, you know, like what, what are ways I can go and, and make these money grabs? You know, I'm not, I can now go and work in these higher level jobs than I used to be able to work. You know, I got a college education. I got a little experience in areas X, Y, and Z. You know, I can go out and put a resume together and now their people are throwing back salaries. And even that was crazy. I go, I can get a salary. Well, I don't have to work by the hours. Crazy, right? And for a spell, this seemed like something that was really attractive to me, you know? And, and in a brief spell of time, I quickly realized that, eh, this isn't, this isn't the road that I desire, you know? As I'm thinking about what do I value and what do I want in this existence, I go, this is, this is an emptier and less fulfilling road for me, you know? Again, I can only speak to myself. Other people might feel differently. But for me, it was just, eh, you know, I need money, absolutely. Living expenses, I need money to golf, I need money to gamble on sports. Those are the three areas that my money goes into and the rest just go invest it, you know? Just, again, mid-level American things. <laughs> But I realized that the dollar signs and just the ways that you can bump them up, but you have to sacrifice in other areas. I said, that's not for me, you know, money. Okay, great. I need it to a certain extent, but it's not a thing that drives me. It's not a thing that fulfills me. And over the course of those 20 years, and especially within the last decade, I've been able to circle in on things that really do fulfill me and that I value. And that as I lean into trying to maximize them, I go, mm, this stokes the fires of happiness, a thing that I really care about. You know, the first thing is time. That's something that has always existed within my life. I've, people have kind of like made fun of me a lot of times because I am very particular in how I spend my time. And that has really been unshakable <laughs> in a strange way into present day where I go, no, 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 no. If I'm investing my time in something, I have to care deeply about that. And so people say, well, let's go. Why don't you want to do this? And I go, because I don't want to do that. That does not sound fun. <laughs> and there are things that I could do in its stead that sound fun. I'm not going to sit there with my hands underneath my ass just going, oh, I'm just going to sit and watch Netflix tonight. I go, no, I'd rather go and do this thing. So I'm, that's what I'm going to do. And the opening of time that avenue leads into, well, what do I care about? What do I want to spend my time on? Time is just an abstract, you know? You don't sit and hold on to time like you do money and say, I'm going to go and just now I have time and I can sit and stare at a wall and this is going to be thrilling. No time. It may be actually kind of in a similar way to money. It's what do you want to invest it in? What does it lead to? You know, for me, time equals the two things that I truly crave, which is experiences and connection. Uh, golf would be a great example of all three of those things because golf takes a good amount of time to get good at period. It takes an incredible amount of time. And then once you have it, it still takes a lot of time. You got to go and play around in four hours. That's a long ass time. But it opens the door to those two things that I love above all else. Am I having this incredible experience? People that I care about that I have a connection with, that we all have a shared connection through this thing we're doing? Yes, 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 and yes. So that's uh, a driving force. You know, I've, I've spoken to that before. I will most definitely speak to it again because that's how I process people's motivations. I say, well, okay, this is what I would do in that situation, but I'm not going to get on their case for acting in a separate manner because they are a different human being and I'm sure they have thought through what is the best option. 
So now we circle back to kind of the organizational level, and then I want to distill it down to the individual level because the Stanley Cup playoffs are going on right now as we speak. They are, they are, and I, again, I do not say this because the avalanche are involved. I've said this my entire life. Stanley Cup playoffs are the purest form of competition. Has nothing to do with money, has nothing to do with anything except for just these people are willing to kill themselves to try and hoist this enormous silver chalice. And greedily as a fan, I love it. I cannot get enough of it. I say you cannot be, you cannot, you cannot beat this as a viewing experience. You can't have this conversation with my brother after game four of Avs lightning. And I go, it's kind of crazy because this sport is the least popular in the United States, but it is the best for turning this emotion out of a viewer. Not a brief blip, but just you can have it going for periods at a time. And especially into overtime as games one and four have gone in the Stanley Cup finals. There's nothing that approximates this. It is the purest form of competition. And within that framework, as I'm watching, part of what makes it so thrilling and indeed just kind of takes my breath away is the players themselves and what they are doing. The perfect example is the dude who scored the overtime game winner for Colorado in game four, Nazem Khatri, who took a complete bullshit hit from Evander Kane in game three of the Edmonton series, broke his thumb, did who knows what else. Hockey, it's notoriously a closed-lipped sport as it pertains to injury. He has to have surgery on his hand. When it initially happens, Jared Bednar, the coach of the Avs, says, I mean, he's most likely he's done for the playoffs. It just, it sucks. And it did suck because he's an integral piece of the Avs and I like watching him play hockey. So I'm pissed about it and I go, nah. Then they sweep Edmonton. They got eight days off. And, you know, there's little murmurs coming out saying, ah, Kadri, I don't know. There's maybe a chance he can get involved. So now I'm trying to look up every thumb expert on planet Earth going, what can happen? <laughs> okay, <laughs> just the stuff you do when you're following a sport closely. And part of what's fueling this newfound uh, idea in my mind is, ah, I know there are always injury timetables for normal people, and those are not the timetables that exist for hockey players because these people are insane. And on top of that, when it gets into the playoffs and they have a chance at the cup, everything, all logic, all medical knowledge that we have goes out the window. So he starts skating and then there's little videos coming out between one and two. And now he's working with his stick. And then there's, okay, now he's doing more aggressive stick work between, okay, now we're coming into game four and I'm seeing him just put these little weak wristers on that. But I go, he's good enough. He can play in the lineup. You got to get him out here. It's just going to be a pain tolerance issue. And indeed, Nazem Kadri, he's listed in the lineup going into game four. He's playing, playing in a diminished capacity. You can tell his shot is not what it normally is, which is apparently what the thumb is most affecting. But he's just out there doing things that you need because Nazem Kadri knows how to play hockey and he can skate and he can get in position. And maybe he doesn't have a thumb or a hand. So be it. This is the sport of hockey and this is what people are willing to do to sell out to try and win the Stanley Cup. And it culminates just an incredible story. I mean... Over time, Colorado, they're up 2-1 in the series. The Lightning score, it's 2-2 going back to Colorado. Oh, boy. Avalanche score, they're up 3-1 with a chance to clinch tonight. And Kadri gets sprung on a great pass from Arturi Lekkonen. Quick move to his forehand, chips it up. Not a, not a shot with a lot of heat because he can't, but just a great move, chipping it through Andre Vasilevsky. Goal, Avalanche moving on, up 3-1. On an individual level, again, as I think about just 
all of these winds that are swirling around everything and especially within the world of golf and within the world of basketball, the two sports that right now I go, you guys have so many areas to improve and I don't think you're trying to improve them. I say, you got to look at this and you got to find a way to channel it. I don't know how you do that again. I don't know how you distill it because it's just a cultural thing in hockey. From the time you you pick up a stick up until if you get to the NHL and you're playing in the playoffs and you're playing for the Stanley Cup, there's just something that is ingrained in the sport that it's just, it's team above all else and all I'm willing to do is whatever it takes to win. That's the Nazem Kadri thing going on, right? And I watch that and I go, this is 5,000 times better than when I watch, if I'm going to watch Dustin Johnson go play golf for live, or if I watch one of these Bozo PGA Tour events where Doofus Magoo is playing against Doofus Magoo and I go, no, I just, I don't, I don't care about this. Does anybody care about this? Or I watch, you know, uh, a Ben Simmons or a James Harden play basketball. Just people who represent kind of the worst of what the sport is in present day, which is just apathy and sweet. I'm getting paid a lot of money to do this thing that seems very apparent. I probably don't really care about. You watch James Harden play in the playoffs and you watch Nazem Kadri play in the playoffs and you go, these are not comparable sports. They just aren't. They're on. They're in different planets. They're different galaxies almost. And as a fan, that bothers me because I go, well, the first thing is always the best to watch. It just always is. It's always the best. When you understand people are invested, you, you, you yourself becomes invested. When you understand people are just, you know, chasing money or whatever their motivations may be, but it's not the competition itself, you go, why am I that interested? I don't really know. Now, what's interesting about this, if you think of the two extremes within this, uh, conundrum. And I don't think you have to choose one or the other money or competition. I think in an ideal world, you can find a perfect ground. And I think sports have done that before. Individuals have found that before. What's kind of intense is if you think about the human component and say, what is more fulfilling when all is said and done, what is more fulfilling? You know, the person who chased the money, are they more fulfilled or the person who chased the competition? Which one is it? And I don't know if there's a good answer there because I think the tendency would be to say, well, the person who chased the competition, they're always going to be more fulfilled. And yet we have examples, you know, think like a Jerry Rice or a Michael Jordan, people who they made money in their own right. But I feel very comfortable saying it was never their motivations when they stepped onto a field. Those two are uber competitors right up there on the upper echelon in the history of the world. And when their playing careers were over, it's just the Hall of Fame speech from Michael Jordan and from Jerry Rice, both they're very bizarre. Because you would think these people had everything and they won everything. They're widely acknowledged. Rice is the best receiver in the history of the game. MJ is the or the second best basketball player, depending on your thoughts on LeBron. But they're widely acknowledged as just you're as good as it can get. And instead, they spent their speeches just talking about the things that got away and the slights that they felt. And just they could not take off this mantle of competition. They couldn't just say, MJ couldn't say, you know, it was sweet. Went in six championships, won a bunch of MVPs. I was the best player in my sport. Still might be for the history of this game, but feel pretty good about life. Got a bunch of money in the bank. I golf, I gamble, I smoke cigars, I hang out with attractive women. This is a good life. Instead, it was just, and you know who, who doubted me? This person here. And you know what happened here? Just And Jerry Rice is going, you know what I think about? All these seasons that got away and I could have done this in these playoff games. They just could not turn it off. And the flip side of that is like a, a DeChambeau or Brooks Kepka, people who are now going to live, who have won majors in their own right. You know, they've, been a part of that competition. But now they're going to a sport that seems, or a league that really does not seem to care about competition. 
They seem to care about having the shiny new toy that can exist and great, go and play this exhibition in Portland and go play over here in London and then we'll have the final out here in Saudi Arabia. It's going to be great. There's no tradition. There's nothing beyond just this monetary thing. There are no fans that are built into this league because how could they? It's just only existed. I think about the comparison between and go, who's going to feel better, you know? Where Jerry Rice and MJR right now or where Brooks and Bryson are going to be decades down the road after all of this has played out and we can clearly identify that was a good or a bad move for your career. That was a good or bad move for you as a human being. Who knows? You know, that's a really murky question. I can always theorize about how I would feel in the situation. And my thing is always, it probably comes from just not having been a part of that life and the way that life has pushed me. It's just, you know, find balance, man. Just the cliche, but it's true. Uh, do the things that make you happy and try to balance them out. And you're probably going to be in a pretty good state as far as how you feel about the way that you lived your life. Now, I'll make one more note and then I want to read something I wrote to close this. Um, there's another part of my personal experience that I can speak to from years and years and years of being a writer in the world of business and tech because I interviewed a lot of people who went through similar quandaries themselves. They had to choose road A, B, or C, and especially a road involving money because in the end, that's pretty much what tech and business is about. People talk about, yeah, you know, I wanted to build something. I want to do this. Once you get to a certain level, everybody I've ever talked to, it just turns into a matter of money, which is kind of sad as a person who was talking to these people. And I go, oh, this doesn't seem very enjoyable. And indeed, the thing that I, one of the things I took away the most of those years of talking to really high level entrepreneurs and executives was I never met a person once. I never met one person. I talked to a lot of people on and off the record, but I never met somebody who was fulfilled by prioritizing money above all else. Never, never, not once. Met a lot of people with a lot of money and none of those people really matched up with what I believed their emotional levels would be at. It was always just, ah, you know, uh, not necessarily regret, but just like, isn't there something more than this? Very Interesting it was something that stuck out to me greatly as I started that. And I still thought like, yeah, oh, you know, the pursuit of money, that seems really appealing. It's kind of how I was taught growing up. It's the way that all everybody who's uh, living in America, United States of America growing up, that's the way that you're taught. So to see that was just, oh, this is a little bit eye opening. OK, let's open my brain a little bit more. What other things are there and what avenues do I want to pursue? So that's a part of all of this, you know, there's, there's league questions, there's individual questions. There's probably no answers to almost any of these things, which is why I like talking about them. You know, I deal with abstracts and just all that kind of stuff. Um, but I, I want to read, so I wrote a newsletter this week. Some of you might've already read it, but even if you have, I, I think it's a good bookend and close to the show today. As we talk about this particular situation, PJ tour and live and just Above all else, I don't think we're going to be in a good state in professional men's golf because of what is happening now. So this comes from my newsletter. Again, if you have not subscribed, you should. It's at chrisrawl.com. Just go there and there's a subscribe tab that you can hit, put your email in. Every Wednesday morning will come out. So this comes from this week and then we will be done. 
We should be spending this week talking about how Matthew Fitzpatrick, a young English lad who wears braces, won the U.S. Open. How Fitzpatrick, who dresses in oversized polos that I guarantee are hand-me-downs from an older sibling, stormed through the back nine on Sunday at Brookline to defeat Will Zalatoris and Scotty Scheffler by a single stroke. We should be talking about his long putt on 13 and the ensuing awkward fist pump, the approach on 15 that was anything but adolescent, and the fairway bunker strike on 18 that caused me to call my local orthodontist in hopes of improving my iron play. Instead, we return to the ongoing saga of the PGA Tour versus Live, the Saudi-backed golf league plucking noticeable names from the PGA with promises of untold riches, minimal work, and a series of soulless exhibition tournaments. It is fracturing the sport of professional men's golf, and honestly, nobody wins here. The PGA Tour has spent decades refusing to improve their product, stuffed corporate sponsorships down the throat of every single fan, and continually leaned into a brand of dartboard golf that is boring at best and embarrassing at worst. It is no coincidence that the three most scintillating tournaments of the year, the US Open, the Masters, and the Open, have nothing to do with the PGA Tour. Unfortunately for fans, Live improves on nothing the PGA Tour offers. Brooks Kepka is the latest to defect to the Saudi venture, joining big names like Phil Mickelson, Dustin Johnson, and Bryson DeChambeau. Despite repeatedly claiming that he doesn't care about monetary pursuits, it seems as though Brooks may indeed play golf for the money. Shocking. I'm not here to call anybody out for making an individual choice, but I can speak about my own experience. And any decision I've made strictly for financial purposes has ended up in a bleak, dead-end alley painted in the words of Bob Dylan. Money doesn't talk, it swears. Professional golf seems determined to descend to the abyss. We'll end with the depressingly accurate words of Kyle Porter, the excellent golf analyst for CBS Sports. Forensic work on players' social accounts to try and determine the future, overpaying for splashy names who are fun on paper but past their primes, and guys publicly clapping back at rumor mongers. Professional golf is now the NBA. Thank you for listening to The Chris Rawls Show. This podcast is produced by Weston Tanner. If you have an emotional connection with sports that runs deep and you are willing to talk about it into a microphone, you should contact me. My email address is chris at co.com. I want to interview people who fit that criteria. So send me an email. We can hash something out. It's going to be grand. It's going to be fun. I'm excited to get some people on the mic and have other people kind of listen to people who are not me talk about that deep emotional connection that sports can inspire. So reach out. Chris at CEO.com. I'll talk to you on Tuesday. <laughs>